Test, test. Hey. <laughs> hey, everybody. It is uh, Wednesday, January 14th, 2015. My name is Luke Thomas. This is the weekly promotional malpractice live chat uh, here on MMAfighting.com. How are you doing? Today on the docket, we'll talk about a big weekend in combat sports. Bellator 132, World Series of Fighting, which is Friday. World Series of Fighting 17, which is Saturday. In addition, kind of a boxing match you may want to pay attention to. Uh, Berman Stavern versus, or Bermain, however he pronounces it. Um, I've heard both. Uh, versus Deontay Wilder. That's going to be a crazy one on Showtime. Then on Sunday, the bigger one of all of them, for anyone who's a related anyway. Conor McGregor taking on Dennis Seaver. On Sunday night, it's a big weekend, man. It's a big weekend. So, also we have um, invariably John Jones doing all the things that John Jones does that makes everyone crazy and want to punch me in the face. I saw your comments last week over on YouTube. Crazy. Anyway, um, but we'll get to all that and everything else you want to talk about. Best place to do that, of course, is on MMAfighting.com in the comment section. The comments that turn green get priority. You can email me at luke.thomas at sbnation.com, and you can tweet me at SBN Luke Thomas. I should note that a lot of folks emailed me. I mean, a lot of folks emailed me last week. I am still in the process of answering those emails. So if you email me last week and you haven't heard back yet, just be patient. I'm getting to it. There's a lot of things that are. There's like a. I was I was amazed at the amount of uh, feedback we got last week. So I have trouble. Answering it all. Um, I think that's it for disclaimers, except to say, if you're watching this now, be it live or whenever you hear this disclaimer, please make sure to uh, share it on social media, Instagram, Twitter, Facebook, uh, Vine. I don't know. Share it, though. That'd be cool. Uh, and I'd greatly appreciate it. All right. Looks like we are doing good. Everything's rocking and rolling. So with that said, how much coffee do I have left? Oh, a fair amount. Shoutouts to... Oh, can y'all see it? Shout outs to the Mud House here in Washington, D.C. Love that place. All right. Um, okay, with that said, let's just kick this off, shall we? First question. Oh, you know what? One disclaimer. One disclaimer. I I have a Facebook page, facebook.com slash Luke T Sports. And um and I posted something about the John Jones rehab thing where he left after one day. Now, listen, some folks are starting to accuse me of taking a contrarian position for the sport of taking a contrarian position. Let me just let me counsel you out of that idea, which is to say, if you disagree with me, that's fine. If you think that um, uh, I'm an idiot for the way in which uh, and the, and for the particular views that I espouse, you are certainly welcome to float the argument. Um, if you think it's just you know flatly absurd, these are all things you are welcome to to say. Um, and if my admission that it's not me actually being contrarian, that it's me trying to think through the issue, makes all those things worse for you, I am welcome to that reality as well. I just want to demonstrate and assert unequivocally whether I'm wrong is is not the issue the issue is I'm I am not looking at what's happening and then deciding I want to be the opposite I am trying to be as fair to uh, Jones and the athletes as I know how to be and you may take issue with that and that's fine you're more than welcome to of course uh, I don't even need to tell you that you already know that but don't be under the you know 
bizarre assumption that this is some sort of childish game for me. Uh, it's not. I'm trying to think through the issue however I can. And I'm trying to, um, yeah, there you go. All right, first question. Luke, will the UFC really come to Ireland with a stadium show if Connor beats Dennis Seaver? There's only Croke Park and the Aviva Stadium in Dublin. By the way, I think it's the park that he has, Dana, Dana White has said that they're focusing on. But those, both of those are open-roofed. Would the UFC invest in a temporary roof, even if that's not possible? Uh, or even, excuse me, even if that's possible? Or would they take a chance to put on a show in open air? They would not put on a show in open air, which is to say they might do what Klitschko does when he competes in Germany sometimes, where there's a covering of the roof. Or I should say for the ring itself, there's a covering, like a, like a makeshift roof. And so the lighting goes under that. Uh, and it covers the ring and, you know, ringside officials and, you know, maybe VIP. To, I'm not sure if it covers VIP, but you get the idea that, like, the, the bout itself would be uh, essentially unaffected. But the rest of the stadium would be totally botched. Now, note that Dana White said in the recent um, Ask Dana, I don't know, Q&A he did with fans, he said it would either be in the park in Dublin or in Vegas. And a lot of times you'll know that they have these grand ideas about when they want to put on shows and, and how they want to do them. And then they wind up scaling them back when sort of the reality sets in. I think they have ambitious plans. And I'm not about to say they won't do it, but, you know, I think when he says it's going to be in that park or Vegas, I would lean towards Vegas with the possibility it could be in the park. It's just so much easier to do it in Vegas. Um, You've got great relationships with the hotel venues. It's easy to do media. By the way, it's going to be on pay-per-view, and that's important. And so uh, I'm not saying they will never go to Dublin. I'm not saying it won't, they, they won't go to Dublin this time. I'm not saying any of that. They might They might risk, <clears throat> risk it. But if I had to bet, I would lean towards Vegas. I really would. I just think it makes a lot more sense for them. Remember, they are doing a Sweden show, but it's a Fox show, which, remember, they start earlier and they end earlier. You know, the Fox main card, I always I always realize this because, you know, you have to cover them here as media. And, you know, when there's a pay-per-view, it's like my evening usually starts for work around, you know, 6.37. When it's a Fox card, it's like 3 in the afternoon because the main card kicks off at 8 p.m. So that Sweden show, they're able to work out a little bit more. But remember, after Jones beat Teixeira in Baltimore, I was there. I covered that event for MMA fighting. I remember asking Dana at the post-fight scrum, so where are we going to go with this? And they're like, you know, we're thinking about doing a Sweden show. This is before Daniel Cormier was even in the picture. It was going to be um, Gustafson versus Jones. Remember, the original fight was going to be Gustafson versus Jones. And then when they announced it, where did it end up? Wind up? Where did it end up? Uh, finally, being Vegas, Vegas. You know. Um, so you know, I'm not saying I am. Believe me, don't leave here and be like, oh, Luke said they're never going to go to Dublin. Not what I'm saying. Just saying. You know, there's so many things that make it easy and make it work and make everything all right when you do it in Vegas versus, especially for pay-per-view. But if you're going to have a Fox show, which starts earlier, there's no championship on the line. You're not on pay-per-view. Going to places like Sweden, even already with the challenges that it faces, you know, 4 a.m. start time for the main event, um, that's still at least a little bit more doable. With Robbie Lawler now taking some time off, how do you see the 170-pound division sorting itself out? Johnny Hendricks, if he beats Matt Brown, will have a 2-2 two two record. Rory McDonald, if he gets past Lombard, will be on a five-fight win streak. 
I'm not sure what the UFC was thinking, giving Hendricks the rematch, but this will legitimize his claim to the rematch, or excuse me, will it, um, for a third time with Lawler with a dominant win? Do you think Rory Max should get the next title shot? Sitting on the outside of that title shot bubble, if they win their next fights, are Lombard, Woodley, and Gastelum? Do you think who do you think should get the next title shot with a win? Well, I would eliminate Woodley from the conversation. I just don't think if even if he beats Gastelum and you know he beat Dong Hyun Kim. Um, this is not enough for me. I think there's still more work to be done. Same with Gastelum. Gastelum beating Ellenberger is great. If he beats Woodley, that's really impressive. But that's work that Roy McDonald did like last year. So Roy McDonald's ahead of both those guys as far as I'm concerned. So then it becomes Rory Mack, Lombard, um, Hendricks, and I guess Matt Brown is in the mix if he can beat Hendricks. But I find that to be unlikely. Not impossible, but unlikely. So you got those three. So now Rory Mack is going to face Lombard. I suspect, you know, obviously only one of those guys is going to win. I suspect it'll be Rory Mack, but again, crazier things have happened. So that leaves Hendricks coming off a win off Matt Brown, and then Rory Mack coming off a win off of over um, Lombard. If if things happen as they're, you know, reasonably likely to happen, that means that tells me what you should do is then Lawler versus McDonald because the Canadian market could really use it. That's one. And then you give Hendricks the winner of Gastelum versus Woodley. Especially since Woodley and Hendricks have unfinished business from their wrestling days. Um, that, to me, is an interesting fight that you want to make. I would like that a lot. Um, but Or Gastelum, if Gastelum wins, it's fine. that works too. And then the winner of that gets a title shot. And then Lombard can face off against Matt Brown. Lombard can face the loser of um, Hendricks versus whoever. You get see, So that's, to me, how it plays out a little bit. Is 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 Woodlum and Ga- uh, Woodley and Gastelum? They're in the queue, but they're definitely behind a spot. I know Dana White has said that Gastelum could fight Lawler this year if things go well, but just speaking realistically, I think that's probably a back burner option. Again, though, never you know, we, this is a rule that we all have to keep in mind. The complexion of how you win defines your your serendipity. It defines your fortune. If you go out there and and you know, oh, you know, you're number two, number three in the queue. And then you have this this balls out guns blazing performance. You can jump the line, so that's that too. But if I'm gaming it out in my head, I think Lombard loses to Wood uh, loses to McDonald. I think McDonald keeps going. If I'm just a betting man, I think Hendricks beats Matt Brown, and I think that between the two between Gas and Woodley, I don't know. I haven't just quite decided yet. But either way, so then I think you give Lawler versus Woodley. You can do Lawler versus Hendricks again too, but I just don't think you want to do that to to, to Rory or the Canadian market. So I think you get. Rory being the next title shot, and then you get Hendricks fighting the winner of Gastelum versus uh, uh, Woodley, and then you go from there. Weight cut. Okay, so I know that weight cutting has always been a part of MMA and wrestling, but it has always bothered me. For example, it bothers me that a fight is at 170, but guys are never 170 on fight night. Johnny Hendricks spoke... Uh, in regards to how bad this weight cut was and thought about possible retirement coming from 218 to 170. Furthermore, sometimes fighters have a significant weight advantage and are 20 pounds o- o- over their weight class. Cormier versus Henderson, albeit Henderson was 195 that night. I guess I just find it ironic that a fight is deemed at a certain weight class, even though none of the fighters are actually at that weight on fight night. Moreover, unless you have a clone of Dolce running around, weight cutting can be a dangerous and inefficient, not to mention laborious process. What say you to having fighters weigh in on the day of the fight so as to have fighters actually fighting in their actual weight class? Um, this is a topic that gets revisited on this chat, and I think in MMA discussions generally, particularly when you see statements like um, Hendricks, where you know he's contemplating retirement. 
And I saw folks being like, why doesn't he go to middleweight? Well, maybe that doesn't interest him. Maybe he thinks that the only real competitive advantage he has is at welterweight. Whatever you think about how we do it, middleweight doesn't matter. So the, uh, the reason why retirement might come into play is also because when, you're, when your mind is that, you know, that weight cut struggle is truly a test of mental fortitude to an unhealthy degree, but that's what it is. And when your mind has been put, I mean, it's, it's, it's a slow form of torture, to be perfectly honest, is what it is. It's a slow form of torture, um, self-imposed torture. But it's like, you know, there was a way to waterboard yourself and it gave fighters a competitive advantage. They do it. And um, but but by the time your mind is at the end of that process, particularly one from where you're going from 218 to 170, you have exhausted virtually every mental resource surrounding self-preservation and consideration for the future. And so he was probably in the depths of despair and the moment of that weight cut. And then afterwards, just sort of thinking about how unbelievably taxing it was. He wanted no more of it. Um, you know. I'm sure he's going to be reconsidering that a little bit as he goes forward, as he manages his weight more properly in between. But I just mean, um, I wouldn't take that as like, uh, I think that's more a reflection of how he felt versus how he feels. I'm sure he drew a line in the sand. I don't mean to say that, but I think he'll go through another weight cut and be okay, even if it's a tough one. I just think what you're hearing that is that is that echo in, in time from that one precise moment where things went poorly. But um Look, I'm not sure what to tell you guys. Weight cutting is incredibly dangerous at times, um, yet incredibly common. And it's common because it's easy to do in terms of, you know, it's available to everyone and some people do it better than others, but it's not hard to cut five pounds, even only 10 pounds, depending on your weight class. Um, you can do it improperly and still win. We've seen that a million times. This is the thing where you have all the incentive in the world to do it. Everyone around you is doing it. There's peer pressure to do it. There's career pressure to do it. Um, and if anyone has a good idea on how to stop it, let me know. But Matt side weigh-ins are a bad one. Same day weigh-ins, you know, I think are a bad one. You can make that work in another circumstance. We've discussed it on this very chat, how the NCAA has this entire, you know, a university funded apparatus and then, you know, maintained by the NCAA of monitoring weight class, um, monitoring your weight in your class over the course of a season and having specific methods of measuring the hydration you have and what you need to compete. And it's a really hands-on process because you, you, you are a member of that university. You are seen by your coaches day in, day out. They are in some ways responsible for you. Um, and they just have a tighter control over what's happening. And so you can get weigh-ins on those kinds of circumstances where guys aren't killing themselves. We simply lack those resources here. There's too much open space in how a fight is run and how an event is coordinated for the, to, that to be those kinds of controls. It just is not possible right now. It would take a massive influx of cash and organizational infrastructure and resources to do that. And you would also lose a lot of fights because when would you do that during fight week? I mean, these guys get monitored all the time at their university and then before events and after events and through the course of the season, which isn't to say it's not a grind or it's not difficult, but it's not what it once was. They're not, they're cutting, people are cutting significantly less weight than they used to, but they're able to do that because they have mechanisms in place to make that happen that we simply do not in this current space. So are you upset about guys cutting weight? I understand. 
Um, do you, are you struggling to find a way to fix it? By all means, come up with some solutions. What I would tell you though is, I mean, I would, I would just incentivize it, you know, there's, there were, I mean, maybe this is an idea. Like you don't ever want to penalize a guy for cutting weight. I don't think if he misses weight, um, you know, you could, that's part of the, the restrictions, but here's what I mean. Imagine you could measure hydration and you can't anytime you are above a certain level of hydration, you get a bonus. You don't get penalized if you're below it. You just, hey, you get, you know, you get your show money, your win money. Hey, you might get a performance of the night bonus, but here's an extra incentive. Here's an extra incentive. If you come in with um, a certain proportion of hydration in your body, which they can measure, we'll give you an extra $5,000, you know, showing us you're cutting less weight. Um, maybe that's a way to go about it, but other than that, I don't know. Given the current abilities and limitations, I really don't know. You get a guy doing mat side weigh-ins; they're gonna they're gonna take every every possible measure. Oh, that's my wife. <laughs> hey, I'm in the middle of my live chat. I can't talk. No, love you. Bye. Sorry, guys. All right. Luke, do you think the reasons the UFC not calling Benson Henderson and letting him know that his opponent had been changed to Cowboy Cerrone, who found out about his new opponent, Cowboy himself? Um, I don't know. It's one I want to ask. Do you think that this was a calculated effort on the UFC's part by not telling Bendo about the change to force him to agree to this bout agreement with little or no resistance by him, but putting it out in public first, which is true, is quite shady? Or do you think it's a simple fact that UFC just doesn't have their shit together? Oops, sorry. That's him saying it. Not me. I apologize. I should have said S. Ben being a former lightweight champion who has fought for the organization for the last four or five years, headline cards, and the UFC not treating him as a loyal employee, I think is S-y on their part. I don't know. I really don't know. I, I, I hesitate to speculate on this one. To your point, it's just unprofessional. But one wonders if Cowboy did it and then put it out on Twitter before they had a chance to tell him not to, and then it just sort of steamrolled into something. I don't know. I don't know how that worked, but that is one where um, I intend to follow up on. So that's I'll leave it at that. But it's a it's a fair it's a fair question. It's an interesting one where you're finding this out more and more. These guys are getting notified in the weirdest way, or no one's telling their management, or their management's finding out after the fact, or um, it can all be a coincidence. But at the same time, it's not clear exactly what it means. I think until we have better information, we should give everyone the benefit of the doubt here while still acknowledging that's not the way to go through business. These, it should be kept private until both parties um, know and understand and consent to, to what's, being, what's being changed. With Hendricks now fighting Brown, this leaves Rory open to fight Lawler. Well, except Rory's going to fight with Lombard. Do you see this fight happening now? Why is it, do you think, that Rory was not slated against Brown? If Hendricks was promised a rubber match, it looks as if Roy's original promise might come to fruition after all, or maybe not. Well, it's not because he has to face Lombard. So there's that. Hendricks apparently wants to stay busy. Moreover, they're in that Dallas market and, um, you know, Pettis is fighting RDA on that card. They need some Dallas fighters on that card. They need some Texas fighters on that card. Hendricks is from Texas. He, I think he works out of Dallas, as a matter of fact, for the most part. Um, even though he wrestled for Oak State. I think they need some local guys to go in there and 
be able to do media and drum up attention because Pettis, while a burgeoning star, still isn't quite that guy yet. And it may not be for some time. They need some local muscle to help push that around. So um, we'll see. We'll see. But I think that to me is, you know, it can't be coincidence that he's not getting the rubber match and that he's from Dallas and that the card is in Dallas. Like, it seems fairly obvious what's happening here. Luke, with a win on Sunday night, would and should Cerrone overtake Nurmagomedov and secure the next title fight after Rafael Dos Anjos' fight with Pettis? Um, he might. He might, but... I don't think he will. First of all, I haven't seen the rankings. Let me see how the rankings play out right now. See.com slash rankings. As bad as they are, you need to know who's what and where. Because that never hurts. All right, let's see. Lightweight. Light nubs. So Nurmagomedov is two. Cerrone is three. If Cerrone beats Benson Henderson, who is five, uh, he could do it. Here's what I would like to see. They could do that, but, you know, we've already seen Cerrone versus Pettis, and it wasn't very competitive. I don't know why any of that would change. So that's a problem. I've often mentioned Nurmagomedov is, um, to me, sort of, I would like to see him fight Pettis next. But uh, he's been out for so long, I'm not sure what the right way to handle it is. Here's what I would prefer to see. It's just a matter of personal preference, and there's a lot of arguments against it, which I fully acknowledge. I would argue that I'd like to see if Cerrone beats Henderson, which by the way, I don't think is likely, but you know, I don't think it's, I think the fight will be closer than some imagine. I'll put it that way. It'll be, it'll be somewhere between the first and second fights. You know, the third, the second fight was just a blowout. First fight was back and forth. It'll be somewhere closer to closer to the first, but ultimately ending, I think the same way the second does um, in terms of Henderson winning. But if Cerrone does win, I would like to see him face Nurmagomedov. I really would. Because Nurmagomedov has great wrestling, and I think he'd be able to use that in takedowns to his advantage. But Cerrone is very clever on the feet, as we know, and is really tricky on the ground. I think that is also a good fight for Nurmagomedov to get back into action with. The winner of that could be promised and would clearly get a title shot because the next person down is Melendez after that. Um so that's sort of what I would lean towards. And you could say, well, listen, you're going to kill off one contender when Pettis could use many. I understand, but the UFC has done that before. This is not if they if they chose to go that route, it wouldn't be the first time. I think you get a sensational number one contenders match with that. That you could put on a number of different platforms. You could put that on pay-per-view. You could put that on Fox. You could put that even on Fox Sports 1 if you wanted to. And you could put it on it has such value to them. And because Cerrone is such a ubiquitous um, fighter for them on so many platforms, it can go anywhere. It could be an attractive co-main event or feature fight on a pay-per-view. It could headline a Fox card. There's a lot you can do with that, and people really respond to Don Cerrone. So even if they don't know Nurmagomedov, um, I think the Cerrone bout gives you some help, and you could have a great co-main event as well. So, that, so that, I think it has that kind of real value. Not a lot of fights you can put just in any role. I think Cerrone versus Nurmagomedov has a lot of different uh, holes it could fill. Um, and again, Nurmagomedov being off that long and then just 
you know, catapulting right into a title shot. Something just, it, it feels like a waste if you do that. It feels like a waste. You got this guy who is incredible in Nurmagomedov, Gomedov, but he's been out for a while. Pieces of his game are still coming together. You just rush him into a title shot right away, especially while Cerrone's been doing this. Doesn't make a lot of sense to me. And again, you could say, well, Cerrone should just go back and get another shot at Pettis. But like we saw it the first time, and it was deeply, deeply non-competitive. Um, so I, I just think that's the way you go. You sacrifice a little bit. You just say Cerrone versus Nurmagomedov, winner of this for sure gets the title shot, and then let the chips fall where they may. That's what I would like to see. Robbie Lawler versus Roy McDonald, two for five rounds. Who do you take and why? So I actually went and uh, recently rewatched their fight, the first one. It was uh, it was different than I remember it. I somehow remember the fight being a little more dominant for Lawler than I than I was the second time I watched it. You know what's funny about Lawler, and this happens both in, in three and five round fights, um, he seems to fade in the middle rounds, the middle portion, I should say, of a fight. You know, he has a a a strong to decently strong opening. I would never say he's not a weak opener, he's not a slow opener. Sometimes he comes out barnstorming, sometimes he comes out really good. So I understand there's a bit of a difference there, but he never comes out weak. I think we can put that aside. And he finishes strong for the most part, too. He didn't finish so strong in the Hendricks fight, but you've seen just so many times where he's turned things around, both in around itself and in especially late. But he has this weird thing where kind of in the middle of a fight where he gets, you know, the flute plays with a cobra and he kind of gets dazed and, and he gives up a round or several minutes of a round anyway. And he did that in this fight. If you go back and watch Lawler versus um, McDonald from, I think, UFC 167, he had nothing for McDonald in the second round. McDonald got a takedown, was able to, from butterfly hooks to land savage ground and pound, passed a little bit, and Lawler clearly lost the second round. First round was pretty close, although I would have given it to Lawler based on the strength of some leg kicks, which Rory never checked. But in the third round, that's where things changed. He came out and, and barnstormed Rory, and Rory had a little answer for it. Tried to get, you know, stalling with takedowns a little bit, but just could never hold him down either because Lawler stood up or the referee even stood them up. A couple of things to note. One, when Rory had him on the outside, that's when he was in not only a little danger, but was able to score a little bit. But the problem was, while he was not in much danger, he just it took him until the second round, really. And even then, it wasn't as great as it could be to like put striking combinations together, to really do damage. In other words, he wasn't taking a lot of damage on the outside, but he wasn't really doling it out a whole lot either. A couple of good jabs here and there, um, you know, checking Rory or uh, uh, Robbie with high kicks. They were blocked, but, you know, making them just be aware that that's coming. But there wasn't, like, uh, he had a good couple counter strikes over the top, a good right hook over the top. But what happened is like, the difference between the first and the third round was that Lawler would pursue Rory would take evasive action, and then the fight would reset. You know, Lawler was the aggressor, and he would try to blitz him a little bit, but they weren't hardcore blitzes. That's not what happened in the third round. They were hardcore blitzes. He would not stop. He would eat a shot to give two or three, and you could see it was a pretty valuable trade. And at that point, Rory, the evasive maneuvers that were working in the first round, they didn't work here. And on the inside, Lawler is much more compact, much more explosive, can bang out huge shots in, in tight quarters, uppercuts inside, 
um, um, elbows over the top, even even short, tight, you know, winging hooks. He was able to land those, and it gave a lot of problems for McDonald dropping him. McDonald couldn't hold him down. So and that's the other part too. Like the wrestling between what Lawler showed in the McDonald fight, and then what he showed in the second. Hendricks fight is like a universe better. Now, I still think that Lawler would be taken to the ground by McDonald, but maybe not with the same amount of ease that he got him down in the second, uh, even to third to some extent. Um, especially the single leg defense has gotten significantly better. So I would still favor Lawler. I would still favor Lawler. For me, I think that Rory can do better. There's some room for improvement. But when you look, go back and watch that first fight, the best place he was was still a place where Lawler could win at range. Lawler was much more active with leg kicks. And, and yeah, you know, he get, he, he took a couple of body shots, a nice body kick. Um, again, a couple of good jabs. But Rory needs to really – he doesn't need to go from here to here, but he needs to go from here to here maybe with offensive output on at distance. He's a little too hesitant with it, and as a consequence, he can't really seem to do a lot of damage – collect a lot of points, really put someone in danger. So what happens? If you don't put someone in danger by that third round, here comes the bulldozer that is Robbie Lawler. And that's, you know, when Robbie Lawler is motivated in the space of a round because he feels like he might be down on the cards and he still has energy and he hasn't taken a lot of damage, good luck stopping that. Good luck. And that's sort of where he found himself in that third round. So so that's how I would play that one out. I think I'd still favor Lawler. Lawler, we know, can go 25 minutes. And he might fade a little bit in the middle, but he starts strong and he finishes even stronger. And I think that um, given the given the ways in which their offense is met the first time, there's still more ways here for Lawler to win. All right, here we go. Uh, Luke, what are your thoughts on John Jones checking out of a rehab facility within one day? I hate to admit this, but Nate Diaz – I haven't even followed this at all. Nate Diaz stated that John Jones going to rehab was a publicity stunt. But the fact that he didn't stay in the facility any more than one day, could Diaz have been right? Uh, it's a great question. A great question. Um, you know what's crazy about all this whole stuff? And I know you guys got a little bitter at me because every time you, like, John Jones is so reviled that if you defend John Jones, people want to kill you for it, um, which I partly understand. But let me just say a couple things about this John Jones situation. Number one, um, I don't know what's happening in his real life. You know, you hear things in one ear, you hear things in another. Greg Howard had a couple of opinions in his article. Um, no one really knows that I know of for sure. I mean, because everyone on Twitter after the fact is always like, yeah, well, I've been hearing these rumors forever. Well, you didn't publish anything because all you heard were rumors. You know, and maybe you've seen some things personally. I've never seen anything. All, all my interactions with John have been in professional contexts. So, like, he came here one day. Remember, I had to sit down with him. Or, um, you know, I see him at media events or uh, uh, when they did that concussion thing where, you know, remember it was Viacom and UFC and uh, and Showtime or it was Golden Boy and Top Rank all together. John was there as well. John spoke there. Um, so, I've seen him in these kinds of contexts. I've never seen him outside his personal life. So, I don't, I don't know what is happening. And that's a deeply unsatisfying answer because you want me to give you skinny. Have I heard some things? Yeah, I've heard some things, but just none of it is really – it's such delicate information that I can't corroborate. I just think it's irresponsible to share. Um, but it does give you pause, you know, because I don't know that it's coming out of thin air. And so here's what I would say, man. Look, 
I don't know his personal life. I've been told uh, enough that as a general rule, I can determine he likes to party. But these are deeply uncommon things for someone who's a 27-year-old male, particularly one who might be the best fighter ever and is rich. You know, um, I think people, and maybe because I haven't made my argument very well, I think people have misunderstood some of what I mean when I say he used, you know, when I try to defend his coke use, because we don't really know the extent of it. If it was just a recreational bit of drug use that he had um, that showed up, you know, maybe he did it at the beginning of camp and, and something he does infrequently, um, I don't think that's my business. It's not punishable by um, the NSAC. You know, if you want to turn into a criminal matter, that's something you can do. If Reebok wants to take issue with it, they can as well. But if it's just that, I think obsessing over it is ridiculous. And I think um, trying to assassinate someone's character for what is very common behavior for people of that demo is ridiculous. But on the flip side, if I were a trainer, would I want my fighter, no matter his level at all or her level, to be doing that? Certainly not. Um, do I wonder if those, you know, if he had, if he has bad habits, are they slowing his progress? I mean, he might be so far out ahead, it, it may not matter, but that doesn't mean he's still maximizing his potential. I think that's an issue. Certainly, uh, I would never recommend cocaine as a, you know, oh, you should, um, you know, stay out of the sun, drink green tea. And uh, do coke. It's great for your health. No, I, I still would not recommend that at, at all. But there's lots of things people do for their health uh, or against it that is not my concern. Um, you know, people don't use uh, protection when they have sexual intercourse with people. People don't. Um, people don't wear helmets in states where you're supposed to wear helmets when you have a motorcycle's license. There's all kinds of things that I don't think we're necessarily in the business of regulating on a personal life, okay, or someone's personal life. That doesn't make them troubling, or excuse me, that doesn't make them not troubling. That doesn't make them great, but it sort of limits what we can do from an outside perspective and what we should do. These people should be policing their own lives up to a certain point, at which point the jurisdiction of the NSAC or any other commission kicks in. Um, and I think you should draw a line there. And if it is recreational, it is none of our business. And if he is checking out a rehab after one day because it is just recreational, then I think the whole thing is absurd and I'm glad he walked out. You know, if it is just recreational, and that's a big if, I'm going to get to the other side here in just a minute, but if it is just recreational, then, you know, it's funny because people are like, well, if you're going to go to, okay, let, let's pause it for a moment, something. It may be an addiction, in which case I'll get to in just a moment. But if it is, if, 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 if it is just recreational, would you even want him going to, 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 to rehab? It's like, let's have you go through the motions of a phony exercise for a problem you don't have to satisfy my desire to see you fulfill a phony narrative. I mean, that just makes no sense to me at all. At all, so that's my opinion on that situation. If 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 he does not have a real problem, it's like if he does not have a real problem, and which he might, but if he doesn't, and he just walked out, I by all means walk out. I don't care. Now, on the other hand, if he does have a problem, and again, I don't know that he does, and neither do you, and maybe to some extent only John does, but if he does have a problem, 
and there might be some reasons to believe that he does. Certainly not nothing to conclude, but plenty to ask questions about and to have some red flags about. If he does have a problem and he's refusing help and it was a PR stunt to get people off of his back because he doesn't care to address it, I, you know, the hell? I don't think I need to tell you anything more than that about what, what a problem that could be. That would be a serious problem, wouldn't it? Um, again, I don't know what the truth is. I don't pretend to know the details of John Jones' personal life. I don't. Um, I, I can tell you from a macro perspective, I've heard enough to know that he parties, but I've never heard him do anything more than I've ever done. Um, well, okay, the coke bit might be a bit much, but I mean, um, I, he's. Ne I've never heard him do anything that I've either not done or none of my friends have done. And I don't hang out with, believe it or not, I know you may think otherwise, but I don't hang out with degenerates. Um, I try to, you know, I try my best to hang around with people who, you know, are a positive influence on my life and, and the positive influence on, on others and, 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 you know, are meaningfully contributing to the society around them as best they can anyway. Uh, so, th so that's it. But it's just, you know, and here's, a, here's what I'll say against John Jones that I just think is inevitable at this point. Because I've been fighting this current of like, it's just impossible to have a conversation about John Jones without either some of it or in most cases, the majority of it being about his character. And for me, it was just incredibly nauseating. It's like, why are we, why are we doing this all the time? But the fact of the matter is, uh, and again, if it's just recreational and he's leaving rehab for one day, okay. But I will say in the totality of his actions, there is also an argument to be made that he, you know, I don't know brings it on himself is the right word, but he certainly does not make it difficult for his critics, however irrational they may be, to make his character and his judgment issues relevant to any conversation about him. And I think that's what I'd like to see go away. You know, it's like, how did George St. Pierre do it all this time? You think he was at home on Friday nights reading books? <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, I don't know what he does in his personal life. Um, I doubt he's a virgin. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, I don't know these to be true, but just a reasonable speculation on my part. I'm sure he's had his fair share of fun. And whatever that may be, I don't know. But I don't, I don't think that, you know, he's at home uh, in some sort of like monkish uh, celibacy and distance from the rest of society. I don't, I don't think it's what's happening. Yet he's managed to, for the most part, um, stay out of trouble. He's managed to never have something of this magnitude plague him. And certainly, as far as we can tell, nothing like that ever be relevant to the context of professional competition. Like we still don't have those test results yet from Nevada, which by the way, is just like unbelievable. So I don't know you guys, I don't know. I'm tired of the story, believe it or not. And I'm tired of like defending Jones and I'm tired of everyone thinking I got like, I'm being paid to defend him. I want to have conversations about him that don't involve this stuff, but I am also willing to admit to get to a point where we can do that. It is entirely incumbent upon like, I think so much of John Jones hate started out irrationally and I think much of it still is irrational, but if you give someone irrational, just enough ammunition, um, you've created an entirely new dynamic. You've created an entirely new dynamic because 
they may have started out with, I don't like this person. But now, after the fact, oh, I've got all these reasons. And some people, you know, some people didn't start hating him until the DUI. I understand that. Some people didn't start hating him until um, go get some fans. I get all that, too. People came along on their own methods. But sorry, a lot of the, a lot of the pushback started early because I guess he has that effect on people, you know. But at this point, whether you think it is fair and whether you think it is right and whether you think it is important, I would just say a timeout. It doesn't matter what you think about that anymore. It is part of your identity. And if you want it to go away, you basically have to change your identity, not who you are, but how much we get into, how much we get to know you, how much of that is a shared experience with us. You shouldn't be testing positive for drugs like this, even if the NSAC, um, you know, is or isn't going to do anything about it. You should just, just not have it happen, really. Um, you are a partner to, to Reebok. You are a partner to the UFC. You are not being a good partner when this happens. And I'm not trying to be overly judgmental about it, but it's hard for anybody to be like, well, our, you know, listen, we have a great partner. Sometimes it's just positive for cocaine. Like, who would say such a thing? You know, so 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 this is this is what I'm trying to get. It's it's a difficult position, and in some ways, it sort of meanders a little bit. I get it. I'll move on from the question because I just want to address it and then be done with it. But um, at this point, I, the only thing I'm just like saddened by is that we we I'm afraid that through his own actions and just through the way in which things have happened, it's just I I'm afraid we'll never be able to have a conversation about John Jones strictly on the terms of what happens in one of his fights going forward, at least not for the foreseeable future. Last thing I'll say about this, though, um, whether you hate him or love him, irrelevant for this particular point, I do think we've entered a new era of John Jones' popularity. You know, I do think this will elevate him in a way, assuming it doesn't. this whole issue doesn't ruin him, but if he's able to get back on the horse from a competitive standpoint and at least keep doing what he's been doing for the most part, and I mean, you know, by that I mean a certain level of performance in the cage, um, I think, I think this whole thing, like we're, like we're talking, like, well, we'll see what happens in the next fight, and you know, there's a good chance it may propel him. I think that I think that's past us. It's clearly propelled him in a good way and in a bad way, but it's 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 clearly propelled him. He is clearly on a different level now than he was. I think that fight did him huge favors, and I don't think that the cocaine issue did him huge favors, except in the sense that it has made him a more visible figure of scrutiny. And when that happens, you have reached another. It's it's not it's it's evidence of the fact that he has attained a higher status. So I don't know that every pay per view is going to do from here on out. He's going to do eight gazillion buys. I'm not saying that, but I do think he took a turn after that with that fight, and then after that fight of popularity. Now, where maybe he is becoming the star for for better or for worse that we always thought he might be. He just took a a really different path to get there one of his greatness and one of his personal failings and together that has made for such a compelling person and idea to contemplate that it has collectively pushed him up. What do you think of Kevin, Kelvin Gastelum and Hector Lombard being the leading candidates for tough Latin America too? Seems like a good fit, especially if Kelvin beats Woodley at UFC 183. You know, I don't know, man. I mean, Kelvin was on the Ultimate Fighter, and so recycling him as a coach after all he's done is great. I think Hector Lombard would be, you know, be awesome because he deserves the attention. 
Still, I wonder, although he hasn't really done enough to really merit the position, but I still think that Jorge Masvidal is criminally underused. Um, Ricardo Lamas is floating out there. That's another guy you could grab a hold of. Um, I don't know, man. I'm just kind of over the whole thing. I know they have they got to do it and they got to find coaches. I'm over these guys sitting out forever and then they got a fight scheduled and half the time a guy pulls out because he gets injured. You know, Lombard's not so bad for that and neither is is Gastelum, but uh, I don't know. I'm not opposed to it in 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 the given the way things are just going to run, but I'm kind of just over this whole thing. Like, oh god, this guy's sitting out for like if 2015 is going to be the year of fun, and I think it is. You know, I'll get to this more in a moment. If 2015 is just going to be there, we're like, you know what, guys, let's just sign some pro wrestlers, man. Let's just have some fun. You know what? Okay, he's got to go through Dennis Seaver, and that's not the toughest challenge. It's not the worst either, but let, let's just do it. Let's just do it. Okay, fine. The last thing I want to do is tie people down, especially exciting fighters like Lombard, who is exciting for the most part, and Gasoline, who's always exciting, uh, you know, to these lengthy terms of, servitude to a reality show, which I understand has importance and the UFC. I, I get all that. I get all that. I'm just telling you, I'm not particularly excited about it. Uh, Luke, it struck me Jones's head movement versus DC. He seemed to bob erratically tilting his head back and forth and sideways. And what appeared to me to be an amateurish fashion. Far be it from me to call him an amateur, though. Did you notice his head movement? If so, do you pick up on a technical reason for it? So he doesn't have, someone says, Je suis Charlie or Charlie. Uh, so you know what's interesting about um, Jones's technique? It's not a bad question, actually. He doesn't have, like, you know who's got great head movement? And you're going to laugh at me because you may say, oh, well. You know, there's many of the guys who have better head movement, and that's fine. But one guy who's always struck with me, stuck with me, and I know him personally, who's had great head movement, is Mike Easton. I think, you know, you can say whatever you want about Mike Easton and how he didn't have the UFC career that some expected or, or whatever. Um, still, he has great fundamental boxing for MMA, and I think he's got really good head movement and good. He slips jabs well, and he parries jabs well. Um, and I think that should be considered. And, and so you, you say, well, okay, you know, I'm not saying that Mike Houston has the world's best head movement, but for an MMA fighter, I, I would say he's got some of the better ones out there. And if you say, okay, if that's more the traditional kind of head movement we're talking about here, the more boxing, kickboxing style, what does John Jones have? And you might be right, actually, that it doesn't fit that traditional model. But this is sort of part of where people are like, John Jones is just a big old oaf that uses his size advantage. It's like, if that's what you're reading, you need to take a second look. It is true that he doesn't have the head movement you're talking about, that really technical movement. He doesn't have that technical movement from his footwork either. He has decent footwork in terms of where he puts himself, but he doesn't have, you know, balls of your feet kind of footwork. He's not really, um, you know, moving and circling out in ways that you'd always expect. Part of what John Jones does is realize that his body is going to move a certain way and that his mechanics enable him to do certain things and limit him in other ways. And he really fits a style around that. That's one thing I'd say. Two. He is, uh, I think partly this gets him into trouble, but he manages to make it work. He is willing to try things in a fight or be creative on the spot just to see if it works. So he, head movement may not, may not be part of something that he does, partly because he has a long reach and keep guys off of him. It's not, it's not like he's getting, like when Cormier was tagging him, he was tagging him a little bit from the outside. It was mostly on the inside. You know, that's where he got, he got, now Gustafson a little bit different, I understand. And so 
some of your criticisms about him not having proper head movement might be more relevant for that impending fight if we end up getting it. But what I, w- what I would caution you against is measuring what Jones does against traditional forms of what is accepted excellence. He borrows from some of that, and some of it he adopts. Some of it he gets creative with on the fly just to see if it works. In this particular case, it may not have worked that well. Um, and, and I don't just mean head movement. He does with lots of different things. Um, you know, pulling guard, for example, just strategically. Like, what are you thinking? That was a really bad idea. But he's willing to try it because, I don't know, he wants to try it. Um, and I, I think that in, in examining his greatness, this has to be taken into account. It has to be taken into account that he will fight in ways that aren't to his optimal strengths just to have a win of his own personal satisfaction. He will try things in a fight that are not typical skills of his or that he doesn't do particularly well just because he wants to try it. And so part of his greatness is, one, his willingness to do that because sometimes it works, but that he succeeds in spite of some of these deficiencies, is that he is able to win even though he has these like creative pursuits in the middle of a fight that strategically have very little value. This is an interesting card I haven't heard in a while. Or interesting question, I'm sorry. Ring card girls. Why do we still have them in 2015? Isn't it a bad image for any promotion trying to gain female fans? Plus, it makes MMA fans look bad when you see the creepy obsessions with the girls online. It's 2015. People can see pretty women anytime they want on the internet. There's no reason for them anymore. Yeah, it's weird, man. It's like, uh, you know what it is, though? It's like In some ways, it's like, why do you have them? In other ways, it's like, are you really, you know, why wouldn't you have them? Like, like, what is the concept of Hooters? Okay, it's a, basically a sports bar uh, where you get um, lots of wings. Hey, who doesn't love wings, right? They t- they're tasty. Um, you get lots of wings. You get big, tall, frosty jugs of beer. Not the best beer in the world, but hey, it's beer, right? Um, they show UFC events. So, like, what is the appeal of Hooters? Well, <laughs> partly it's that they... I mean, if not partly, if not in totality, there's nothing unique about that. I mean, their wings might be a little bit different and or better or whatever your perspective on wings is. But the only thing that's really different is that they've got um, waitresses with huge busts in scantily clad clothing. Hence the name Hooters. Like, this is this is the appeal. Like, do you need that for your wings? No. Um, it doesn't make your beer any colder. Uh doesn't lower your bill. <laughs> In fact, you raise it in some circumstances, depending on how much of a uh, horned-up, generous tipper you are. And so what's the point of this? Well, the point of this is that men like to be lascivious, and, uh, and there's a market for it. And um, it is, I agree, something of a vestigial organ of the way in which old promotions and boxing and combat sports used to work. Um, but I would just argue that the girls seem to like it. I don't know that they're overly exploited. Um, they're probably compensated for the most part pretty fairly, although I don't know that to be sure, but I fairly strong reason to believe that they are. Um, and uh, while it has very little relevance and or need, it is just one of those things where it's like um, by having it, you create a certain dynamic that pleases a big portion of the audience. I don't know how else to say it. And, it's, and because it's just shy of exploitation, 
it has acceptance. Already answered all the John Jones stuff. Um, here's a question I'm going to have difficulty answering. So, Luke, can you assess how you think a fight between McGregor and Aldo would go if it stays entirely on the feet? Who do you think has more power, is more elusive, more accurate, and overall, who's the better striker? Well, okay, here's what I would say. You have more reason to believe that Jose Aldo is the better striker. Uh, a lot more reason, to, to be quite fair. Um, I would sort of say he's the stronger kicker. I don't know if he's the stronger puncher, but he's probably right up there with him if he's not equal. Um, I would say... Aldo is faster. I would say Aldo is more explosive. I would say Aldo has better experience against much better competition. I would certainly say Aldo, we know, can handle wrestlers. Um, Aldo is probably better in pure – actually, I know Aldo is better in pure jiu-jitsu. Aldo is a better fighter and a more complete one. But you're asking if it stays entirely on the feet. Here's what I would say. Aldo is going to win most of those categories. But – and this is the part about Conor McGregor that people need to accept, like – and I made this argument as it relates to wrestling. People are like, oh, he's never faced a wrestler. He would get smashed by a wrestler. Well, would he? How do you know? We don't We don't know. He might go in there and have no problems with a wrestler. Or he might go in there and you might be right. that Someone like Nick Lentz is a terrifying matchup for him. We just don't know. We just don't know. So, and partly we don't know because we haven't seen it. Partly we also because as someone is ascending through the ranks, they're still building skills in, in, in ways that pass the eye test. Like you can see this guy getting better. I think you can see Conor McGregor getting better. And so I want to see which one we get in this fight on, on Sunday. Part of my hope is that not, it's like, I don't expect Dennis Seaver to win, but I'm hopeful that he lasts long enough that we get to see some more tape on Conor. We just haven't seen enough. Like there wasn't a whole lot to look at that was, I don't know. He just didn't get a full look at him when he fought uh, Poirier. And so kind of what I'm hoping for is, you know, I'm not, I don't wish one guy to win or the other, but I just want Seaver, if he doesn't outright win, to last long enough to let us get a look at who Connor really is. I think once we get a sense of who he is, because I, I do believe fight over fight, there's a lot of growth for him. Um, I, I think he, I think one of the most underrated aspects of Connor McGregor is how much of a, uh, how, how deeply he thinks about technique and ways to win. He gets this unfair uh, treatment as, you know, a Zufa golden child who, who got his way by talking. Okay, those things are true. He is a Zufa golden child, and he got to where he is by talking. But he also got to where he was by winning. And you can say what you want about the competition, but they've beaten everyone they've put in front of him. And moreover, he has done it in ways that have impressed even – some of the most sincere critics, especially with a party fight. And moreover, his he's done it with pretty fairly interesting technique. And he talks about technique as a deep priority for him. Not in those words. He sort of classifies it all as movement. But he's got unflappable self-belief, and he takes the idea of knowing how to do these things seriously. And if you watch him on the Dan LeBetard, uh, highly questionable ESPN show, he goes – I'm a white belt when it comes to movement. And I think what he says by movement is just sort of thinking as a fight as one continuous motion. It's not phases of the game 
or individual pieces you're bringing. I'm bringing jujitsu here and wrestling here. It's strictly how the body moves in and out of all these different sequences. Um, and he says, I'm a white belt there. Like he takes like the idea of development and, and hard work and um, finding things that others aren't doing very seriously, very seriously. So he hasn't been tested in those ways to really know what that all means. But there is enough of what we've seen and enough of what we know of him to say there is some benefit of the doubt, even for his harshest critics, that should be extended to him. Uh, I, I just think that it's the Conor McGregor show is fun, but if you divorce all that and take that all away, there's still something interesting about this guy. There's still something interesting and novel about his technical approach to the game. There's still something interesting about his ascension, and there's something, and there's something admirable about his respect for skills. Skills win fights. I think at the end of the day, he knows that. And he's not saying he's going to win these fights because he's some sort of like destined creature. He talks about, oh, I see this and I see that. But he knows when it comes time to go to the gym, yo, like you have to be doing something well and you need to be doing something different that you know your opponents can't handle. And he may not speak of it in those terms, but that is exactly what he's doing. So I I have a lot of respect for Conor McGregor. I'm interested to see what he can do. I just hope that his prediction of 60 seconds or two minutes doesn't come true just so we can see um, more of him. Uh, Similar question we already had. Would McGregor Aldo be bigger on pay-per-view in Vegas or not on pay-per-view but in a stadium in Dublin? Uh, Not on pay-per-view in a stadium in Dublin. For sure. Here we go. Movement and MMA. Conor McGregor, Dominic Cruz, TJ Dillashaw have all achieved success on a very high level with their movement. Rory McDonald was even quoted as telling Ariel on the MMA Hour that, quote, he, or Conor, is on the cutting edge of some stuff. His movement and striking, I want to emulate some of that for sure. Is the future of MMA movement over single disciplines, as Conor mentioned in a recent year ago with Dan Levitard? There you go. Someone's been reading, uh, doing the same things I've been doing. Uh, well, I, you know what the problem with this whole thing is? When I say movement, here's what I think he means. And I mentioned it before, it's that when no matter where a fight goes, it's all one sort of continuous application of oneself. It's not taking pieces of different disciplines and applying them in a, in a kind of like robotic technical way. I think he's just trying to make everything muscle memory and the idea of just combining techniques into such a singular whole that you're not pulling out pieces. You're just applying it generally. Um, that's what I think he means by movement. But the one sort of issue I have with it is I – don't know. I still don't know exactly what he means. I'm not sure anyone else does either. I haven't heard a good explanation of it, even from Connor himself. I think he's still trying to work it out. Um, I think he has insight into something, but I want to know exactly what he means by that, precisely what he means, down to the finest detail. Because I think once we get a handle on that, we can get a better understanding of what it is he's trying to accomplish. All right. Yeah. Hey, Luke, some, some have come out and stated that Anderson Silva's sparring video where he knocked out his training partner is fake. What are your thoughts? Well, you know what? That is a great question. I have been kind of bothered by that video for a number of reasons. Um, that's a weird video, right? So, like, on the one hand, okay, there's so much wrong with that video. Number one, why was it released? And you can say, well... There might be a few caveats. There might be that I think Globo, who took the footage, 
um, got clearance to release it. Or maybe the camp wanted them to release it, which I find weird, but maybe. Or maybe they released it and they weren't supposed to. Or I don't know exactly why it got released. But let me just say as a general rule, sparring and why people don't tell stories about it. And, you know, this is why Rockhold and Bisping fought. Remember, Bisping was, I was on, I was on set with him. On MMA Uncensored 2012, when he was like, Yeah, I'm the king of Strike Force, or on the Strike Force. Let's just say I'm the Strike Force middleweight champion. And I remember at commercial, he was like, Maybe I shouldn't have said that. But um, you're not supposed to tell stories like that because that information, generally speaking, is regarded as private. Sparring in a gym for elite prize fighters, particularly when people are bringing other guys from other camps or whatever the case may be, it's considered private information. Sometimes some pieces of it are allowed to be shown, uh, sometimes some general things about it are allowed to be said. But there are pretty tight restrictions on it, and there are pretty important rules about privacy as it relates to it. And so, uh, so I was I was just alarmed that something like that would get released because when you see a fighter get knocked out like that, you know the reason another reason why you wouldn't want to release it sort of for pragmatic reasons, like a fighter can be made to look bad or relationships between fighters can be misconstrued. Like a lot of bad things can happen when a tape like that comes out. Moreover. He doesn't just knock the guy out, but follows up with punches after the fact. Like it was, I don't know how they spar where he's from, but they spar a lot. I don't know what you want to call. That's that's hard sparring, man. That's more than hard sparring. That is that is bad news bears. That is that is not what I'm accustomed to understanding as a proper level of sparring among uh, high level pros. Uh, you know, but then again, you know, a lot of that's kept private. A lot of that's kept private. Uh, so I don't know. That's a weird one, man. That's a truly, truly weird one. How it got released in the first place, if Anderson Silva is happy with it, if it's, I don't think it's staged, but if it is staged, that's weird. If it's not staged, it's problematic. There's a lot with that video that is just not okay. Someone says, on this morning's morning report, there was a video of Connor being studied by some scientists. His hips move at a speed of 800 degrees per second, better than that of Rory McIlroy, the number one golfer on the planet. Just how much does speed and power on Connor have in his hips play into everything he does in the cage? Well, it's not just Connor, it's everyone's hips. And it's not just speed and power in uh, striking. Your hips matter in everything. Your hips matter in jiu-jitsu, your hips matter in wrestling, your hips matter in everything. Everything, 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 everything. How your hips face, what direction they're going, what they're doing, if they're off the ground, if they're mobile, all those things matter. Um, and so I would just say that as a general rule, you know, that's the first thing. And second thing I'd say is all those things like John Brankus's sports science, I don't know if that's the one you're referring to or if he was even on that one, the, those shows are stupid. Like they don't mean anything. But, uh, but, yeah, I mean, if you're asking about hip movement, hip movement is the key to everything in every form of, of movement and in every, in every discipline of combat arts. Like, understanding what hips do and don't do is essential to success. Yeah, this, is, this didn't get any recommendations, but someone says the, uh, the new team versus team ultimate fighter, uh, ATT versus Black Zillions, your thoughts. Um, you know, years ago, there was this big thing in MMA media where it would be like, okay, this must have been around season. I don't know. 
maybe after season 10 or so, maybe even before, used to see a lot of how to fix the Ultimate Fighter, ways to make the Ultimate Fighter interesting. And this was always one of those suggestions. Oh, let's have team MMA, but it's not just like Team X versus Team Y, but it's like Jacksons versus Sarah Longo or, you know, whatever it is. Um, seems like they're trying that now. I don't know if it's too little too late. I don't know, man. Like, you know, uh, if they do it without a house where they're still in Florida and they're just shooting on location and it's like, it's like that, I think that might be kind of cool. Um, I think the way FS1 had produced the last season Ultimate Fighter was really, really good. I really enjoyed it. Uh, and I'll give them the benefit of the doubt here. But I just, you know... <laughs> I don't know, man. I can't be the only one at this point who's like, you're pulling a little bit of blood from stone at this point. I'll keep an open mind. If it's good, I'll come back on here and be like, you know what? It's great. And I'll say as much. I did last season. But I just got a feeling, man, that, you know, 21 seasons into this, it's like, I don't know. (laughs) I just don't know anymore. What do you think of Cody McKenzie saying he'd fight Dana for free? Uh, I don't think much. They could have McKenzie's a wild man. I know, uh, but also Nate Diaz only getting 16 grand for a co management slot, a fighter that won the Ultimate Fighter and who has been with the UFC for so long, only able to make a total of 40000 with a win. Isn't it a little ridiculous how low these wages are? Uh, yeah, a lot to look at there for the Diaz one. First of all, there's no denying he hurt himself there with some of his uh, antics, even as I, a local Nate Diaz supporter, um, can admit that like not doing media, even if you don't want to do it, is you know, same with Marshawn Lynch. Like, everyone's like, hey, hey, so funny that Marshawn Lynch does this to the media. Meanwhile, you just got some guy from the Seattle Post, uh, television, just, he just wants to go up there and do his job. He probably doesn't make a lot of money, and he's sticking his BS microphone recorder in Marshawn Lynch's face because he has to write this up and he's just trying to get through his day and there's Marshawn Lynch being a D-bag because it's still like hilarious to see the uh, the rebels in high school talk back to the teachers it's like dude first of all this is a rigged game Marshawn you're gonna lose and you did to the tune of $100,000 and more um, and you know it's just so petty and juvenile uh, just 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 do it okay just do it Nate Diaz just if you're going to lose money, fine, but don't make it for reasons like this. So there's partly that. The other part is, I mean, I'm a, every time someone's like, hey, isn't that wage low? Hey, isn't that wage low? And I'm just going to tell you the same thing I always tell you. My opinion on this is well-established, ladies and gentlemen. Fighter salaries are going to be low until they act collectively to raise them. That's it. That you are not going to maximize your value and get as much as you think you are worth if you, unless you are you know in a unique position like a Rousey or a Jones or a Silva, unless you act collectively. You have to do that. If you do not, you will you will you you just don't have enough negotiating leverage to make the same amount of money. Just a fact. So until they act collectively, some people are not going to make the kind of money you think they should make. Thatch versus Wonderboy. How do you see this matchup going? It's an it's an interesting one. I don't think it's worthy of a main event slot, but they don't have a whole lot of options left uh, for that show, which just seems to be uh, bedeviled by injuries. But um, I don't know. Thatch is a bit of a wild man. Wonderboy is a little more calculating. It's a little hard to predict, I think, going in. 
it's a little bit hard to predict in terms of um, I think Thatch is a little more explosive. Wonderboy is a little more of a counterfighter. So I kind of favor Wonderboy. I think his takedown defense has come a long way. And I think he's good at staying out of trouble. And so I couldn't lean towards Wonderboy. He's also got a little bit more experience. But Thatch is one of those guys who can light you up pretty quick. And, you know, change between phases of the game really fast, too. Silver versus Diaz on the ground. Could you give a detailed breakdown of this matchup if it goes to the ground? Do you see Diaz being able to keep it there long enough to get a submission, or do you think Silva gets back to his feet pretty easily? Silva's takedown defense against the Fed has been really good. Um, has been really good. Uh, was really good against Chris Wyman, I would say that. I think his takedown defense, you know, opposite of that, meaning, again, I think real wrestling in MMA is not against the cage. I think it's in the middle of the mat. And the guys who can, like, turn on a dime, guys like Rory McDonald, by the way, um, they have that. I would call that much better wrestling. And so, uh, you know, I don't think Diaz has the kind of wrestling to get him down there, but let's say he did. So if it's on top, I think Diaz would probably pass with a fair amount of ease. Um, but he doesn't, that's just not really his game. Maybe he finished, who did he finish with the Kimura? He finished um, the dentist, Josh Near, or was it T-Bag? One of the two he finished with the Kimura. Um, but it's just not the way in which he goes about playing his game. He's a little bit more of a guard player. Even with the guard, though, I don't. Th- Silva is not what Diaz is on the ground in terms of pure jiu-jitsu, but probably got good enough defense and just would, wouldn't want to be there anyway. This is not one of those bouts I see going to the ground unless somebody gets hurt. And even then, I just see these guys finishing, finishing each other with strikes. I also am like really hesitant to always be like, here's how it's going to play out on the ground. Like I don't know what kind of guards they're going to use. Maybe they use a butterfly guard to take the back. Maybe they... Maybe they use, um, maybe they go deep half or reversal. I don't, I don't know. I mean, th- that they've never done it before is irrelevant. They're both quite good and adept at it. Um, but both, when it comes to the ground, have been labeled, I think, fairly as guard players because they just both lack in the wrestling department. And so, when you ask me how is this going to play on the ground, I'm like, I don't think that it is. And if it does, I don't think it's going to play for very long because I don't think either one really has any interest in finishing there. I think they both feel like their best chances probably on the feet and one's going to be wrong, but I think that's how they feel. Luke, it seems like the website comment sections have been packed lately. Is there a rise in interest in MMA recently? Yeah, it's called Jones versus Cormier. A rising tide lifts all boats, doesn't it? Um, I don't know if there's been an interest in MMA as such recently because it's going to die back down. You're not going to see the same interest this week as you saw when Jones fought Cormier, but that's what you're looking at. Is uh, yeah, they're packed because John. This is what I mean about John Jones too. Like for better or for worse, he is a he is an elevated figure now, and so there's a lot more of interest and attack and defense and scrutiny generally around him. Um, I mentioned before, like one thing that really hit uh, in terms of traffic, you know, that was kind of surprising was uh, Daniel Cormier's um, you know response to the whole positive drug testing, a very classy response that he put out that blew up. Like there's just a certain amount of magnetism around big fights and big fighters that has a carryover and spillover effect. No doubt about it. You can look at this chat or, or look at my Monday morning analyst. Like I did one for uh, the weekend. So there was nothing really to talk about except I did RFA 22 Polaris and then Dusty Harrison headlining the first um, rock nation boxing show. 
that Monday morning analyst is not going to do a lot of traffic. It didn't get a lot of comments, but that should be very expected. There's not a lot of interest in any of those events from a wider perspective. Anyway, now I'm still going to do the podcast because that's the way the podcast works, but you get my point. Like, um, I don't know. There's a bit like everyone just all of a sudden loves MMA again, but Conor McGregor got a lot of rub on, um, the promotion for this was on these NFL shows, which did like record ratings. And uh, it's coming on the heels of Jones Cormier, which has been a big, big issue. All the different portions of it, the fight itself, the aftermath, lots of it. So, yeah, it's not like all of a sudden people are like, you know what? I love MMA again. No, it's not that. It's that they still have a soft spot for it from a casual audience perspective. And they come around when there's big, big to do about it. And this was a big one. And it's having a carryover effect. Uh, Mulky Kawa, there's been comments about him being a terrible influence on Jones and generally being a huge jerk. Any thoughts on that? Um, I've known Mulky for, I don't know, God, how long now? Um, I don't know, a few years, something like that. Um, you know, we definitely had our run-ins before. Uh, I've generally always been on fairly decent terms with him. I'm talking about friends with him or, or enemies by that stretch. Um, I've heard the same things that you have. Uh, but again, I just sort of go back to saying, do I know the ins and outs of John's life to know that um, I can point to various influencing factors as detrimental to him or not? I, I'd be speaking out of turn. I could not get up and could you tell someone with certainty, Mr. Thomas, that this is this and that is that about John Jones's personal life? No, I could not. No, I could not. Other reporters who have been closer to John, I think would be better in that regard. Greg Howard certainly has some feelings about it. I think Jeremy Potter has spent some time with both of those guys. I think, um, God, who else has gotten close to him? Maybe Tim Marchman or something like that is close to Greg Jackson. All those would be better people to answer that question than me. MMA fun police. This is a good question. Which MMA fan inconsistency do you find to be more ridiculous? One, a champion beats a contender, let's say Jones over Gustafson, in a close fight that many demand an immediate rematch for, and meanwhile, a champion becomes the first ever to lose his belt by split decision, Hendricks losing to Lawler, and we're all like, nah, bro, F that dude, let's move on. Or, siren sounds, it's the MMA fun police, stop what you're doing and freeze, Mr. McGregor. Just what do you think you're doing not fighting a wrestler yet? Officer Lentz, arrest this man immediately. There will be no more of this meteoric ascension into the title picture with highlight reel-worthy knockouts of other strikers. You must fight a wrestler before you fight Aldo and not even after you fought, excuse me, and not after, even though you will fight eventually a wrestler anyway. We're the MMA fun police, and we don't like the fun without proof. Let's go piece by piece on this one. The first one was I didn't even realize Hendricks losing to Lawler was the first time a, uh, a champion's lost his ball via split decision. That's kind of funny. Um, but that just sort of tells you about the, the that one is more explained because people kind of like Hendricks and people like Lawler. They don't really hate either of them. And so it's like, you know, the Lawler story feels good and everyone's like, great. Everyone hates John Jones. There's a, lot, a big portion of people hate John Jones. Um, and, uh, and so when Gustafson wins or in their mind wins, everyone's like, oh, my God, this is an outrage. It's because it's they want to see John Jones lose. There's a certain personal investment in his defeat, even though it's quite easy to make a case that Gustafson 
you know, Gustafson lost. He lost in real actuality, and I can make a case even if you don't believe that he did. But for the second one, that's the one I want to focus in on. This is the one where I'm like, and I mentioned NMAB, you know, again, 2015, this is going to be the year where, like, you know what, we need some cash. We need some cash right away. We're going to sign pro wrestlers. We're going to, we're going to put Conor McGregor against the schlub and all those kinds of things. Let me just say something, man. And I don't mean this to be like, how do I say this exactly? Look, part of star building and part of matchmaking generally is engineering and part of it is luck. Part of it is serendipity. Part of it is just we've done everything we can and we just let it go and see what happens. Right? That's, that's what, it's, like a, it's like a space shuttle launch, you know? Um, you just you 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 try to scientifically account for all the things you can, but you know at some point in the process it's just not up to you anymore. So you just let it go, right? Part of the way in which boxing, I think you can call it a scam, but I really don't feel like it's that way. And and even Pride is the same way. Fedor Emelianenko is like chief among these people. Fedor's resume, I think, is fantastic, and I think his accomplishments are real. And when he beat Krokop in the way that he did, that was one versus two. And it was, it was, it was beautiful and it was brilliant. You know? But part of the way, I'm sorry, you just need to accept this. It's not really up for debate. Part of the way in which you become a star in MMA, there's lots of different ways. But one way, and it's a time-tested tool used by promoters, is to pack your resume with a lot of serious fights and it's to pack it with a lot of fluff and some combination of between. In other words, serious fights that you know the person will win or have a good reason to believe they'll win because of the way the other person fights, something like that. In boxing, they do this all the time where they build up a guy by giving people that they'll, they'll say he's capable of this. And at some level, I suppose that he is, but just not against this guy. And this guy shines. What you think you believe about a star's ability is partly because what you have been tricked into believing it. It's, it's just, you can say, that's not me. I, whatever I believe, I know it's because this is the full-on fact. This guy is this good. Sometimes they're that good. When Anderson Silva comes around, they're that good. When St. Pierre comes around, they're that good. When John Jones comes around, they're that good. The rest of it is a little bit of sleight of hand. And there's been a real criticism of the UFC over the years that they, you know, promoted like, it was pro wrestling and then booked it where it was like, you know, one versus two all the time and two versus three and three versus four. It was really rough to get a title shot. It was really hard to get a second title shot. Um, you know what? I'm not, I'm, I don't, I would prefer that system because that one feels the fairest to me. I'm really not mad at them for doing this with Conor McGregor. I'm just not, I'm not because uh, they need stars. That's what makes the business work and it kind of makes it fun. And what makes someone larger than life sometimes is matchmaking sleight of hand. It's just the truth, man. And you don't like it, it's so many examples of it. Part of what made Fedor Fedor, if you go back and watch his old highlights, you're going to tell me that in the Oya Ogawa win was like the most credible, most awesome win. No, you had a Japanese superstar, a guy who was a silver medalist in the Olympics, calling Fedor chicken and refusing to shake his hands. And then Fedor goes out there and just molly wops this fool. That's part of the that's part of the myth, man. That's why they call it a myth. 
you know, obviously you can still say he's, you can still make the case if you want that he's got the best heavyweight resume ever or second best behind Kane, depending on what you want to argue. Uh, let's just say first best so we don't anger all of his minions. But that's what I'm talking about here. It's, it's, it's a fair amount of sleight of hand that you just need to accept. And Dennis Seaver is not some S fighter. He's not a bad fighter. Is he the kind of fighter that you want to see McGregor beat to get that title shot? Maybe not. Does he have all the skills that we'd hope for for someone at this level? Okay, maybe not. Is he going to lose? Probably so. But Conor McGregor might walk out of this a major effing star. And by the time he fights Aldo or these other wrestlers, which are unavoidable, maybe he will get good enough. Or maybe the magic goes away, but at least they gave it a chance for the magic to live. This this is going to be, everyone's like, this is the year of seriousness. And I thought so too, and I still think so, because I think 2014 was a bad year from bad luck and bad strategy. And some of that bad strategy is still in play. Don't get me wrong. But I think a lot of it is, you know, like I know they're going to put CM Punk on pay-per-view. That's probably what they're going to do. I would love to see him on a Fox card in Chicago, man. You know what? I'm not opposed. I, I'm not in favor of the signing. I think it's absurd, but it is. It happened. It's done. There's nothing I can do about it. I'm not going to sit here and bash the guy. He's there. You know what? Let's go. Let's go balls out. Put the guy on Fox, not the main event, but put the guy on Fox in Chicago. Put it to a wide audience. Get everyone to watch it. Make it publicly visible. Like do the whole bit in a way that really gets everyone excited. And put a serious fight in the main event. You know. Um, and Conor McGregor, he's going to fight Dennis Severn. Is that the toughest challenge in the world? No. But he will become something greater than he was even with that. Bet my mortgage on it, man. I said that last time about the pay-per-view bots, which I upped the uh, the figure for UFC 182. You know, I, I said it was 700. It would be lucky. It's definitely going to be above 7 and 750. It's going to be much higher than that. But uh, I've been over that. Here's what I'm saying. To wrap it all up, as a promoter, you have to give the right fights when they matter. You have to give somebody the right challenges when you can't avoid it or when they need it or when it's appropriate. But it does not hurt to help a guy on the come up who has serious potential as a star to get a credible challenge that he is still can manage in the effort to build a star. That is a time-honored practice, and you cannot be mad at the UFC for it. I don't know. People asking about Dana. I don't know. I'm not in a position to talk about Dana. Uh, let's see. What's with the long rambling questions today? I don't know. Let's go to the uh, Twitter machine. See what kind of questions we got there. Uh, can you talk quickly about Stavern Wilder real quick before signing off? I'll make it a one-minute pitch here so I don't go over and over and over and over and over again. You got two guys, Bermain Stavern, who is who beat Chris Ariola twice. Um, which crown does he have? WBC? WBA? I can't remember anymore. Is the WBC heavyweight champion he beat um, – he beat Chris Ariola once and then stopped him quicker, I think within four or six rounds in the second bout. I can't remember now. I think maybe six rounds. But anyway, he is the champion. Okay, He's a big guy, has long hair, but isn't, doesn't look too athletic, real technical, though. He has big power as well, but he's a little bit more soft-spoken, um, a little bit more devoted to his craft, a little bit more of an introvert, but sort of emotionally toneless in a way. 
Then you have this guy, Deontay Wilder. You should see this guy. He is a 6'7 specimen, okay? I mean, I mean, carved out of stone. Huge power. Huge mouth, too. He can talk and talk and talk and talk forever. Southern guy out of Alabama. And what he's done is he's managed to make emotionally toneless Stavern just begin to fluctuate with a little bit frustration and a little bit of talking, which he never really did. And so what's great about this is because, one, you could say, look, if Deontay Wilder wins this, you got a, a huge star here. But the question with Deontay Wilder is he's faced nobodies before. Stavern is clearly the toughest challenge he's ever had, clearly, and that's why there's a title on the line. But it's more than just having a title. It's answering the question about whether or not Deontay Wilder is a guy who can box. He came to boxing late, about 19 years old, and it's, you just wonder, was that too late? Was it, you know, because you got like Seth Mitchell taking up boxing after college, didn't quite work out for him, couldn't get past a lot of the top guys. And so now with Deontay Wilder, you have a guy who has all the superstar potential in the world, a big mouthed American who looks like the Incredible Hulk and has just thudding power, is athletic as hell. I mean, the guy can move like a cat. It's incredible. But we just don't know if he can beat the best yet against Stavert, who has beaten the best, at least in the American landscape, uh, to get where he is and has been ever so slightly riled up but has noted, like, Wilder doesn't have what I want. He has – Wilder wants what I have. So there's a, there's a credibility question on the mark. There's a personality question. There's an implication for the future of the division there. And then you've got these two monsters, particularly in the case of Wilder. Man, you've got to see this guy. You've never seen him. He is huge. Huge and super athlete. Can they make magic? And I think that they can. That's the one you want to watch. Let's see. In 15 years at UFC 600, when John Bone Jones is Cade Sides, will he get a standing ovation? Yeah. Yes, he will. My dad once left a tilted kilt waitress an $80 tip on a $100 bill after watching a fight with me and having a few beers. There you go. What will Seaver have to do in order to beat McGregor? Um, he's got He bounces around a little bit. I think it's avoid getting clipped with a big shot. I think we can deeply underrate Conor McGregor's power. But I really think getting in on him and fighting him in the clinch, fighting him inside, and I think you know getting around his waist, trying to take him to the ground, even if you're, even if he's posting on a hand and moving around and and having an underhook battle with you, slowing him down, because once he hits you, it's like pop, 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 and then you just get run over. You got to stop that from starting. And you can't desperately dive on his feet either because then, then that's going to be a problem, which kind of Seaver has a tendency to do, which is why I'm picking McGregor. But that's what I mean. You got you to gotta, you gotta just get – you have to smother him. I don't know if Seaver's up to the task, but that's the one ahead of him. Thoughts on uh, – here we go. Uh, the Jones situation reminds me that we need to focus on the fights, not endorsements, private lives, contracts, and thought. We need to mostly focus on that. But I think the question about Jones is, and it's one I have to be honest with, is whether or not what's happening privately is now making what's happening in competition um, a relevant question. And unfortunately, Jones has brought that to some extent upon himself. Although a lot of that is just, you know, 
irrational fascination about him. Am I the only one who thinks Jake Shields would shut down Carlos Condit en route to unanimous decision win? Probably. Probably. And that's probably one of the reasons why he may not be in the UFC anymore. Uh, hearing reports that Diaz was fined 10K for saying F Reebok, then only 6K for last fight. I haven't heard anything about it. Couldn't tell you. Maybe this behavior from Jones is really just the ultimate super ego behavior of a badass. It, if is it so bad if he doesn't change? Yeah, it is. And I mentioned this uh, in my 10 points about John Jones. It's like, uh, look, maybe they tested, maybe the test they used on you was wrong and you were wronged here, and I can understand that, but the toothpaste is out of the tube. Okay, so something has to be done about it. And if it does, in fact, reveal something that should be revealed because there's a deeper problem there, then that has to be addressed. Moreover, like you just have to be cautious in your life if you are a partner to Reebok, if you are a partner to UFC, and maybe he was trying his best, but maybe his best in that particular regard wasn't good enough. And you can say, oh, the test was unfair. Okay, fine. But um, in Nevada, it's public record. And so, so it doesn't matter if the NSAC doesn't have the jurisdiction to do anything about it. The media and the fans do. You know, th listen, there's not going to be a drug test involving John Jones ever again in Nevada where someone doesn't file a public records or freedom of information request. It's never going to happen again. There will always happen. And so you know if you fight in that state or any other state where that applies, then New Jersey would be exempt. I'm not sure about California, that that kind of scrutiny is going to be on you. If you're a partner to these people, then you have to make a change that shields them from any kind of, of uh, negative consequence. Together, you can do great work. Independently, you cannot, at least not to the same, not to the same extent. Um, all right. If I didn't get to your any timeline for your inaugural appearance on the Joe Rogan podcast. No, he said he'd be interested in having me on, but as you guys all saw on Twitter, but uh, I, I don't think there's a huge budget for it. I mean, it's a super successful podcast, but I don't think he's going to fly me out there anytime soon. So maybe if I'm in L.A. anytime, he might. But, um, you know, guys, go easy on Joe, man. I mean, he's doing the best he can with that podcast. It's a big success. But even then, you got to have some realistic expectations about what they can and can't do. Uh, Sergio Pettis moving to flyweight. Yes, I'm all in favor of it. All right, now we really have to go. Guys, you can email me at luke.thomas at SBNation.com. I apologize if I have not gotten to you. We also have um, all kinds of coverage this weekend, Bellator, World Series of Fighting, and uh, UFC. And in addition to that, um, I'll be on the Series XM Fight Club on normally on Mondays. I'll be on Thursday for the uh, – I'll be on Thursday as well, I should say, for the uh, – for the uh, award show that we're doing. And, um, yeah, that's about it. Uh, until next time, I appreciate everyone watching, and uh, stay frosty.